Okay, hello everybody and uh, welcome to the first of the School of Transnational Law's uh, New Law and Sustainability uh, Colloquium, uh, which will be a series of virtual events uh, examining current questions and developments uh, in the broad nexus of law and sustainability. Uh, so topics such as uh, the global response to climate change, the protection of the biodiversity of the high seas. Uh, and we'll be hearing True. from some of the leading scholars and practitioners uh, of environmental law, but also more broadly than that, uh, law and sustainability. Uh, my name is Stephen Minas. I'm a member of the faculty at the School of Transnational Law at Peking University. And I'm delighted to uh, welcome everybody uh, who is joining us for this first event. Uh, and in particular, uh, to welcome our first speaker, uh, Christoph Schwarter, who is the Executive Director of Legal Response International, LRI, uh, which is a London-based uh, charity that provides uh, free legal advice to uh, developing countries, to civil society stakeholders in the context of the United Nations climate negotiations. And indeed, uh, Christoph is here today to talk to us on the topic of international uh, climate law and negotiations in the times of COVID-19. Thank you very much, Stephen, and hello, everyone. Thank you very much for having me, and um, stay tuned. Before I um, start my presentation, Stephen has asked me to say a little bit about the LRI, the organization I had. We are a network of lawyers from law firms, solicitors, uh, from law firms, yes, um, barrister chambers, um, universities that provide free legal advice to developing countries in and around the climate negotiations. And um, we do that with their help and they do this on a pro bono basis. We provide legal advice around the climate negotiations. Traditionally, this legal advice has always been related to um, international law. Increasingly, countries are looking at how to implement the Paris Agreement and therefore we're also advising on domestic law. And we are currently funded by the UK Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, based as part of um, their Climate Ambition Support Alliance um, that seeks to strengthen the input that um, small countries, vulnerable developing countries in particular, can make into these negotiations. And in particular, of course, the COP in Glasgow at hopefully the end of um, next year. If you want to find out more, check out our website, legalresponse.org. We have a database. All the advice that we produce is um, posted to that database. It's peer-reviewed, totally neutral, and we really do not have a particular policy agenda. Um, I often get asked, why do the law firms and the lawyers support us for free, pro bono? It's very much part of their traditional ethos, but it's also a great learning experience for a lot of younger lawyers. And um, these days, the ranking of law firms also takes into account the number and quality of pro bono projects. So there are various reasons. And before I 
start the presentation, I could probably also say something about myself. I qualified to practice at the bar in Germany, but found almost immediately a job in the UN system. So never looked back, but soon realized after about six or seven years, I wasn't really civil service material. So I then moved into the so-called third sector, the NGO sector, and have been working on international environmental law with different hats for probably the last 25 years. Um, my presentation, I've called it International Climate Change Law and Negotiations in Times of COVID-19. There was a bit of an academic debate recently whether there is already a body of law that we can refer to as climate change law. I don't want to weigh in on this, but saying, you know, the body of international law related to climate change seemed a bit clumsy. So I'll be talking about climate change law. And I also can't really say there have been a lot of changes in the substantive law yet, but I think there are a number of trends and I would like to highlight these in the area of human rights and climate justice, economics and trade, the international climate change regime. And here I will distinguish between the substantive norms, the substantive rights and provisions in the UNFCCC, the Kyoto Protocol, the Paris Agreement and the more procedural questions. How does COVID maybe affect the negotiations? And then if we have time, I will attempt a brief look into the future. My take on all this is probably very much influenced by where I live and also the work I do. So I think your perceptions might be sometimes very different, but I think we can all agree that COVID-19 has had significant impacts on our civil liberties, political rights, the right to assembly, the right to go out, the freedom, freedom of movement in general. But I think it has particularly an impact in the climate change contact on um, social rights, right to life, physical and mental integrity, privacy, home and family, food, water, housing, sanitation, and so on. And in all these areas, the impacts of COVID-19 now, but also the economic long-term impacts, will accelerate, will strengthen the existing threats and impacts on our lives and our human rights. But there are also very many different local responses, and I think that um, human nature is resilient, and there are groups and communities everywhere who um, get together and you know, find their own ways of addressing these challenges. I think there's also a shift now towards digital tools and communication. Um, but I think what you're probably more interested in is the legal dimension of it all. And here I would, for instance, recommend to look at the work of some of these bodies and institution, the Human Rights Council or formerly the Human Rights Commission or committee has looked at 
the rights of climate change refugees, for instance. Um, there is a very recent complaint to the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child. Um, the American Court of Human Rights has delivered, I think, two or three different advisory opinions that all touch on human rights and um, the impact of climate change. The Philippines Commission on Human Rights has looked into the responsibilities of large companies, fossil fuel companies, uh, for human rights violations. And then there's the whole area of climate litigation, for instance. Here in Europe, there's been a case brought by the Uganda Foundation, and there are now similar cases in, for instance, the German courts, uh, the French courts, the Spanish courts, all around individual rights and how they are threatened and already impacted by climate change. And all this will also, it'll, be, it'll become stronger in the future and it would be it would be interesting to know if there are any such cases in in china yet so if you want to write a paper about this or you have some research i'd be happy to distribute that amongst the growing community of lawyers in our part of the world who looks at the um potential of cases and um, legal campaigns around climate change. And I would recommend to have a look at the climate case chart by the Sabine Center for Climate Change Law in New York that monitors all these cases. The big issues that I think are still pending and require a bit more work and research uh, relate to the extraterritorial application of human rights. Human rights are usually safeguarded and protected by the state under whose jurisdiction the individual is. Um, that's problematic in the climate change context where emissions in one end of the world seriously affect emission, uh, the, the lives and livelihoods of people in another part of the world. Forced displacement and migration as a result of COVID-19, that'll become, I think, even more of an issue. People need, for economic reasons, leave their homelands, move somewhere else. Do we establish a system of treaties between host states and others? Is there maybe a need to issue a new kind of refugee pass? And then, of course, climate change response measure. There is a number of large renewable energy projects, for instance, stems in sub-Saharan Africa, that will have serious human rights implications. But a lot of people also consider this situation we are in as an opportunity, as an opportunity to do things differently and to recover in a more sustainable, greener manner. And the um, Secretary General of the UN for instance, has um, put out six principles to recover better in the future. So that money is spent to deliver new jobs and businesses through clean and green transition. And when taxpayer money is used to rescue businesses, it must be tied to achieving green jobs and sustainable growth. There should be a move away from the grey economy, the informal, not regulated economy, 
towards a more green economy. And then public funds should flow to sustainable sectors and projects. Fossil fuel subsidies should be phased out completely. And think about this one in the climate change context. Polluters must pay for their pollution. Climate risk and opportunities must incorporate it into financial system. And I think the last one is a bit of a no-brainer. We need to work together as an international community. What this could look like in practice is that the EU, for instance, as part of their Green Deal and Next Generation Budget, has committed to that, that at least 30% are spent on climate-relevant projects and pro programs. And in as part of their Green Deal, they've also suggested that once again, there could be some kind of carbon border adjustment mechanism. And they've very carefully worded this as in compliance with World Trade Organization rules, because that's always, of course, the balance parties need to strike between free trade and climate change response measures. Whether they've put that into the proposal to challenge the US at this stage, I don't know. We will see what comes out of it. Um, debt relief for vulnerable countries is a big issue. The G20, I think, has um, suspended all the debt repayments for vulnerable countries until the end of the year. And there is a number of initiatives to cancel foreign debt, debt all together. And there will, of course, be legal challenges, probably around human rights again. And I've already read that I think um, lawyers in the Netherlands are, will, will challenge um, support that the big airline, KLM, is likely to receive. And I think there's an, similar initiatives here in uh, the UK. But let me zoom in on the climate change regime now. Here, I think it's important to remember that, of course, we have the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change with a specific mandate to address climate change. But there are also many other international fora where climate change is a big issue. And um, to mention just a few, the big announcements are now often made in the UN General Assembly and the Security Council, I think, has two or, for two or three times met now in order to look at climate change as a potential threat to peace and security. Uh, the International Maritime Organization, the IMO, has very much addressed climate change um, by looking at technical regulations and better designs for vessels. The International Civil Aviation Organization has um, recently established a market me mechanism. And um, because of COVID-19, the basis or the baseline to assess airlines in the future has been shifted. So there, COVID clearly has um, an impact on um, exist existing legal law and governance framework already. So um, instead of 2019-2020, that's now 2019 only. And then there are others, of course, transboundary air pollution, the law of the sea, biodiversity, um, 
UNESCO World Heritage Sites. And I think you will probably cover a lot of these issues as part of this lecture series. But to move on to the UNFCCC in particular, it was adopted in 1992, along with other Rio conventions entered into force in 1994. It's actually quite a short, readable convention, unlike, unlike for instance, the Law of the Sea Convention, which has, I think, over 300 articles, two annexes, the convention, the UNFCCC convention, is very much a framework convention and parties soon realized that um, without specific targets very little would happen so they adopted the Kyoto Protocol which has um, specific targets for the early industrialized Annex 1 countries. The Kyoto Protocol had a first commitment period for these countries until 2012 and then there is or was supposed to be a second one 2013 to 2020 that was determined as part of the Doha amendments so-called second commitment period adopt but, but um, until very recently I mean in fact until now these amendments have not entered into force this will happen pretty much on the last day of the year because it takes 30, 30 uh, not 90 days for these um, uh, for the uh, amendments to enter into force once 144 states have um, ratified the amendment so you can look all this up in the relevant texts the paris agreement was subsequently adopted in 2015 and um, it entered into force in 2016. The withdrawal of the US became possible after exactly three years. They did this and the withdrawal has entered into effect today. This is also all specified in the agreement and I would really recommend to have a look at it. We, my organization under the ECBI, European Capacity Building Initiative Umbrella, published a little pocket guide. You can download that. What is probably important to know about the Paris Agreement is um, it's, of course, a formally binding international treaty. Initially, the idea was to cover all areas addressed under the UNFCCC, under the guiding convention in an equitable manner so not just mitigation not just the reduction and control of emissions but also adaptation technology transfer capacity building and so forth the convention does it but it's very much focused on mitigation subject change under or as a result of the covid pandemic is article two the goals and to date the international community has very much focused on limiting the global average temperature to well below two degrees of, and to pursue efforts to stay uh, towards 1.5 degrees Celsius. But there are also two other goals spelled out in the provision to strengthen the ability to adapt 
to the adverse impacts of climate change and become more climate resilient and making finance flows consistent with the pathway towards low greenhouse gas emission and climate resilient development. And here in C, I think it's clear that we're supposed to move away from fossil fuel energy and invest in low carbon growth, for instance, and sustainable development. But there's also an element that says, because of the history of that provision and the fact that it says global response, that I think makes it very clear that it also has to be a shift of investment from the global north to the global south. When I first started going to the climate change conferences, they were very much technical intergovernmental meetings. Now they've become much more like trade fairs. This is what a list of participants looks like. You see altogether over 20,000 people. And this Madrid, December 2019 was a small meeting because it was moved at the last minute from Chile to Madrid. And these negotiations are characterized by multiple strands of discussions, informal and in, informal settings. You have different negotiation groups for smaller, for smaller parties, smaller delegation. It is very much a challenge to follow everything that's going on. They also have very different resources at their disposal. They can call a lawyer or not. And the main challenge for reaching decisions often is that decision-making takes place by consensus only. So um, it's quite a convoluted process. If you want to get a first-hand impression, check out the UNFCCC website and um, some of the negotiations in the pandemic we do not meet physically anymore that's obviously changed and the secretariat staff as most of us is working from home the technical meetings meetings of committees the whim the legal expert uh, the and um, technical experts they still meet but it's all virtual other meetings, you know, consultations, coordination, this all happens uh, in the virtual space, which can be a big problem for, for instance, some of the African delegates who have to rent a hotel room in order to get proper Wi-Fi for the day. But it's all just informal negotiations. The um, decision clearly is that there can be no formal negotiations and no decisions. So that has to wait until next year when there's hopefully a meeting in Bonn again of the subsidiary bodies and then one at the end of the year in um, Glasgow. What we expect is that um, there will an agreement around Article 6 on market and non-market approaches. That's one of the areas that wasn't um, decided in Katowice as part of the rule book or the implementation rules, whatever you want to call it. And then in order to meet the overall goals, of course, updated nationally determined contributions. Parties are expected to do this um, in 2020. Very few 
have done so, so far. So we are looking forward to next year. There are also areas where the COVID-19 situation is reflected. The IPCC assessment report, that's the um, report of the International Panel on um, Climate Change, the governing scientific body, will include a review of links between pandemics on human pressures on the natural environment. And then, very importantly, the UNFCCC budget for the next two years has to be adopted next year at some point. So I think at least that is an area where they will find a way to take a decision. So what are the not so obvious things to expect? Well, difficult to say. I think as a result of the whole COVID-19 pandemic, we might see completely different dynamics in the conferences. And there might be slightly different alliances. I think, frankly, your guess is as good as mine. I think there'll be more pressure from outside on the negotiation process. And that's also, I think, a result of the many legal campaigns. Um, question mark behind my point on US participation. Um, you know, I was all prepared to say how a new US government might come into the fold again. It's pretty straightforward. They have to access, ratify the convention and then uh, the Paris Agreement, and then it takes 30 days to take effect. But you know, the US have often stayed outside um, international agreements. And although Biden has, I think, very clearly said that he will rejoin the Paris Agreement, I don't really know enough about American politics to say whether that will also happen. And I think it's been a bit of a mistake in the past to always bend over backwards in order to accommodate the US. Um, so my, it might also be that, that they... You know, decide on joining in another way, or it's it. We'll see. Um, I think overall, the jury is still out there. Whether as a result of the COVID nineteen pandemic, we'll see significant emission reductions, or maybe or, or not. Then, but what's already certain is that a lot of the scientific information we need will the collection of that information will be delayed as a result of the pandemic. And I, I also wonder if as a result of the pandemic and, you know, the increased use of modern media, there'll be a different way of decision-making, for instance. Uh, to date, the rules of procedure in the UNFCCC process have not been adopted. And that's because um, parties could not agree on whether they should be voting or not. And I think that's probably very much the basis to create a more modern, maybe partially web-based process of decision-making. Um, I've suggested to our friends as part of training workshops and capacity building work that we do in some 
developing countries to adopt a bit more of a, of a light contact approach and for those um, with a background or a bit of experience in martial arts I'm not talking about light contact and sparring between the US and others it really is just an attempt to maybe move some of the debates that could take place virtually quite easily out of the final decision-making process and then maybe have just one day of focused meetings, you know, with masks and all that to finally come to the conclusions and hammer out the final text. But I think that would be a complete change in culture and I do not know whether that will actually be possible. But I wanted to show Stephen in particular that, uh, you know, I'm also, although I'm, I'm, I'm a practitioner and I go to all these meetings and um, produce my legal advice, I also read, read academic literature. And um, recently I found this article, interestingly published in 2018, that um, highlights all the various international challenges and threat the international community is facing across borders and it is diseases and pandemics greenhouse gas emissions i've talked about this now but there are so many others forests and other ecosystem migratory species that move from one jurisdiction to another rivers oceans of course air and water pollution and you've been talking about many of these issues as part of the lecture series but then there's also organized crime trafficking smuggling and so on of course financial flows currencies trading offshore companies and you know of course intolerance prejudice racism sexism sugar. and these are ultimately the issues that um led our forefathers and mothers after the Second World War to create the UN international governance system that they thought might at some point have a standing army and turn into a bit of a world government. But I think, um, unfortunately, this pandemic has really shown us how far away we are and that where there should have been strong international leadership and joint decision making everyone's been doing his or their probably his mostly their own thing yeah i think i think that's maybe the big lesson to be learned for the future there are attempts now to reform the who the world health organization but i think um countries also need to look at the security council and reform of um, the whole UN system in order to be prepared and ready to deal with these international challenges. And if you want to get an idea about the notion behind the UN and, um, and what, it, what it is there to achieve and how it can maybe help us in the future to create a better world, have a look at that video. The UN has just turned 75. I don't think anyone's really been celebrating this, but you get this warm, fuzzy feeling when you look at the video. Thank you very much.
Well, thank you uh, very much, Christoph. I think you've given us a lot to think about here and, and you've brought us right up to date in terms of the UN climate process and some of the challenges it currently confronts with the pandemic. Uh, but you've also given us a broader framework uh, to think about that often very technical UN process in the broader context of uh, all of the bodies and all of the fora which are relevant to work on climate change. Uh, so I think that that's, uh, that's something that particularly those of us who work within the UN process uh, should always bear in mind, uh, that connection to uh, broader realities. So as, as we turn to the question and answer uh, section of the webinar, I thought I would just ask you, having told us about, as, your, um, as you have described, the, the UN system has had to adapt uh, to the pandemic, uh, how has the work of the Legal Response Initiative, uh, Legal Response International, changed this year? Um, how have how have the demands on your work and how you've been responding to that change? I think that would be very interesting um, for our viewers to know. I don't think for us as an organisation, the world or the way we work has fundamentally changed, because we tend to work with lawyers. Um, civil servants and others in small developing countries. So we have used all the various platforms that there are in the past. And, you know, sometimes it's just a WhatsApp message or a telephone call. So I think in a way we might have benefited from people's willingness to go virtual now because I don't really want to fly around the globe all the time. Um, I think a lot of the younger lawyers we work with are also reluctant now, but for some reason people still prefer the face-to-face -face interaction and um, the in-person workshop. So, so I think in that sense um, there's been a development and we making good use of it and it hasn't really affected our work i think as a result of the cancellation of all the physical meetings and Stephen, you've been to many of them and you've also joined our team at some point i remember um you know how important these physical or these these personal exchanges are and i think for a lot of civil servants in high positions it's also sometimes a little challenging to say actually i didn't quite understand this particular interpretation or can you advise me on how we should be doing this nationally so so there i think a little bit of um interaction is missing and i think we're just human we need that kind of interaction um, but but otherwise we still write the papers we've written in the past we produce training manuals if you go to our website you'll see that the little pocket guide on the paris agreement is available in pdf format and we've also taken some of the components in that guidebook to produce little webinars explaining the the content in our hope accessible language otherwise personally i'm stuck at home in southeast london i would like to meet 
um, some of my colleagues occasionally, but unfortunately, you know, as of tomorrow, that'll be completely banned again. I'm not entirely sure what the rest of the year will look like, um, but we're all we're all all hoping that at some point this blows over and um, we can maybe not resume business as normal, but go to a mode of modus operandi, go to a way of working that really makes good use of the technology and um, only encourages physical contact when it's absolutely needed. So that's, you know, that's my suggestion, the light contact approach. Um, just in terms of the uh, virtual way of work that has been forced upon us this year, uh, I think it, it's interesting what you say about uh, how LRI's work has continued essentially unchanged. Uh, and when we look at the UN climate process, it is such a sprawling process that sometimes we have to break it down a bit. And you mentioned that there is this large trade show-like element to it where businesses, NGOs, and uh, all manner of people come to the conferences and present what they're doing uh, or sometimes what they're selling. Uh, and then there is the work of the uh, the bodies, the committees, which have been created under the conference of parties, and that continues. And then there is the actual negotiations. So if the question becomes, what is robust to a transition to virtual or hybrid, and what absolutely has to be done in, per in person? Uh, it's, it's, I've found it interesting this year that we've seen a lot of the climate action work, the stakeholder presentations, all of that is online. Uh, a lot of the official committees uh, are doing work online, holding virtual meetings, etc. The negotiations, I think, are more difficult. Uh, I think uh, it is a very different dynamic if you cannot have people in the room talking across the table, uh, sometimes talking quite informally uh, across the table. Uh, so I do wonder, and, and I I don't think anyone has the answer to this. What the solution to that is, if the solution is not a vaccine and, and the world sort of returns to some semblance of normality uh, within the time frame that's solving the problem of climate change demands, which is not, uh, which is not years into the future, how does one uh, deal with the challenge of, of the modalities of work that the actual negotiation requires? Uh, so I'd be very interested in your thoughts on that question. Well, I think the fundamental problem here really is that um, the, the decision-making process is archaic, that um, you have other international conventions, CITES, for instance, but parties actually vote and they, they press a button so that you know whether species goes on the list of endangered species or... Um, seriously endangered species. So, so there are ways of, I think, dealing with this situation quite effectively. But the decision-making process in the UNFCCC is really so much um, around this need to build consensus and um, getting all the big players on board that I think unless you 
introduce and finally adopt rules of procedures that allow for majority decisions where you don't actually then, you know, you don't need to bend over backwards again to accommodate somebody's specific needs, but you just take a vote and then run with it. I think, you know, without that political decision, it'd be really, really difficult to enter into a more, a more, you know, more effective mode of decision making. At least I, I don't, I don't see how that could be done. But, but adopting those rules of procedure is another incredible task. Although, you know, a bit of a no brainer for most people. If you go to an international conference and you, or if you, if you negotiate a deal, you know, you can quite easily do this with using Google documents and then maybe having a conference afterwards. And, you know, it shouldn't be that problematic. But, you know, I'm, I'm not, it's really, that's, pretty much beyond my pay level and um, I think it really needs a shift complete shift in in culture as well well just just on the question of of voting and the absence of a rule book it, it is interesting that the default operation of the climate conventions is on the basis of con, of um, consensus now consensus has not always meant a hundred percent and it's uh, it's a difficult question to quantify what consensus is, but this is something we've seen uh, time and again, uh, including, by the way, in the adoption of the Paris Agreement, uh, if, if, uh, if you'll recall. That was not uh, quite unanimous. Uh, now, I do have a question from one of our viewers who asks, uh, how detrimental is or will be the pandemic to the negotiations and wider climate action? in terms of time robbed or time lost. Uh, so any response to that uh, that question? I think it depends. And um, I think I have, I have mentioned a few examples where, for instance, um, the introduction of the trading scheme of the International Civil Aviation Authority, where it's detrimental and where it has negative impacts the jury we still don't know what impact it'll have on the um, new NDCs that countries have to submit I have attended quite a few of the um, UNFCCC informal meetings and um, it is remarkable that at the moment at least all the countries all the parties seem to make commitments to uh, along along the lines of these six principles put out um, by the um, secretary general of the un on a better green recovery so they're all singing from the same hymn, hymn sheet and they're all um promising to take that into account when they recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. But there are also a few cases um, where, where countries have already been, been criticized for doing exactly the opposite. Um, and I think that's, for instance, Brazil, Mexico, the US, Australia, India, um, who 
have been specifically supporting fossil fuel companies again in order to deal with the crises. Um, so I think once we have all the scientific data on um, emissions during the pandemic and at the end of um, 2021 when there might be um, a vaccine it'll be, be easier to say but at the moment I think we're largely speculating aren't we? Uh, indeed, indeed we are and uh, I think that that is a big question that hang hangs over the entire world the degree uh, to which the recoveries from this terrible pandemic will be green, will be sustainable. Uh, and I noticed in your presentation you mentioned uh, the, the Article 21C of the Paris Agreement, uh, which is one of the three Paris goals. And that, of course, uh, is making finance flows consistent with a resilient uh, future to adaptation and, to, and, and with uh, climate mitigation. Uh, so the Paris Agreement uh, has mitigation and adaptation goals, but also this very important goal uh, to transform global finance flows. Uh, and if we're talking about not just government spending, but uh, government signaling uh, to the marketplace, then these uh, pandemic recovery packages uh, are some of the largest, not just spending programs, but signals to the broader economic community that we've seen uh, in a very long time. And, and as you've mentioned, there is a great range uh, in terms of how, how green, how sustainable these are to be. Uh, so this, this, of course, is not a question which is directly uh, addressed in, in the negotiations themselves, uh, but it seems to set a very uh, significant uh, framework for what is possible uh, in the future. Of course, the other thing to, to note is that the recovery is a moving target. Uh, it's, it's sad to say it, but as, as so many countries are suffering second waves and third waves of the pandemic, uh, the economic crisis deepens. Uh, so we start to see uh, some of the assumptions of market actors change, but also some of the very uh, concrete budgeting decisions uh, that, that have to be made uh, change. Uh, so I, I, I don't know if you have any reflections on, on that point, on the, on the question of Green New Deals and, uh, and uh, the potential uh, for these recovery packages to push along climate action uh, and try and bring the Paris targets a bit closer into reach. I work, I, I work with lawyers in, in the London city, um, bankers, uh, insurance agents. I think you'll find that when you talk to them and you might have made the same experience, there is an appetite to talk about green finance and um, on, to, to talk about how to change financial flows and also to allow countries in the South to develop, to eradicate poverty, but at the same time to leapfrog certain development stages. So, you know, rather to, than to build another high-speed rail somewhere in the UK or Germany, it should maybe be a high-speed link between Addis, Nairobi, you know, but... I think um, the governments are also, uh, they, they need to create the regulatory framework maybe to make it 
more appealing, more attractive to invest in the South. I think maybe this pandemic underlines the need once again. That is, I think, where the, the global North, the traditional earlier develop, uh, industrialized countries need, need to play a leadership role. And that would, of course, be an initiative maybe for the COP in Glasgow to strategically look at how um, investment can be channeled into the global south. The industry, to some extent at least, would be interested and I think ready to support this. But, um, you know, it also means potentially cuts in the north and maybe less economic growth in the law in the north so you know politically that's probably quite a tough one for a lot of politicians here in our part of the world and australia of course indeed indeed we can't forget australia uh, christoph we have another question related to the pandemic um, as each country is is challenged by its own problems like con uh, controlling the virus and and revitalizing the economy um, so how can the Alliance uh, for Climate Action and Ambition be, be consolidated or brought back together? Very good question. I'm not a, I'm not a natural campaigner, but um, I think that's probably exactly what is needed at the moment. And um, I have heard from friends in um, smaller countries in the South about all the initiatives around and producing masks, cleaning um, the environment, you know, already respond jointly to the challenges by COVID and climate change. How we can do this maybe on a larger scale as civil society. I'm sure that uh, the lawyers that have challenged mitigation commitments in Industrial com industrialized countries based on human rights obligations could do the same around the recovery and hold governments accountable if and when they fail to take into account the need to be more sustainable and the need to take climate action in conjunction with responses to COVID. 19 um how we create that global mindset maybe you know my 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 response to that really is along the um last uh two slides i mean it is a global world we we cannot build borders and make borders the uh, dominant factor in international decision making um, the fewer borders the better and then you know people can maybe um, move freely a bit more than they used to and you know we can collectively f respond flexibly to the different challenges um, maybe that's you know a, a, night, a nice a nice topic for um, one of the, the cop or one of your next seminars you know how do we create those alliances yes it's certainly a good phd topic uh, as, as well as a seminar topic 
Uh, Christoph, the last question we received is one that I suspect a lot of people will be thinking about, uh, and that is, what could be the influence of the United States withdrawing from the Paris Agreement? They have withdrawn. Um, I think the damage, the psychological damage, was done about a year ago when they sent the letter. I think a lot of people are also looking at this as an opportunity to create maybe a more stringent and um, robust international framework to address climate change. But, um, you know, as of, as of today, they're out of it. And if it stays like this, and if the new administration, if there is a new Biden administration, if if they if they then join again um, after he takes office, and he promised to make that one of his first um, acts in office, then I think we might be back in a situation where everyone's trying to accommodate. Uh, the US, but, but, but if it stays as it seems, as it is at the moment, and they're out of it, then I think, um, you know, there'd be leadership from other countries, and there might be new constellations. And I think, for instance, at some point, if we're really lucky, the EU might decide to take, um, take up arms against the US. I mean, that's, of course, a massive exaggeration, and put in place something like a border um, carbon adjustment process that if countries that um, produce goods without taking into consideration the long-term impacts on the climate, then they also need to pay for that extra. Well, uh, again, it, thank you very much, Christoph. I mean, it's it's an extraordinary moment uh, that we're living through. Uh, I, someone I, I follow on Twitter wrote... Uh, I hope there will be an author who is equal to the task of capturing these times that we're living in and, and preserving them for the future, because it is an extraordinary moment. But also, uh, when it comes to climate change, uh, a time of great decision. Uh, and, and that's why we've been very fortunate, uh, Christoph, to have you here today to tell us uh, about uh, the UN climate process and, and uh, the, the time of the pandemic, uh, but also, I think, to give us some hope uh, about the future and, and how uh, the international community can continue to improve its collective response to climate change. And of course, negotiation uh, between parties and states is part of that, but of course, that's by no means uh, the whole story. So thank you very much, uh, Christoph uh, Schwarter. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.